And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Before I talk about my guest, uh, a little bit of news for you, a little bit of Axe Files news. Uh, We've been nominated for two Webby Awards for Best Show and, God bless them, Best Host. Uh, and if you want to vote on this, you can go to webbyawards.com and register your opinion. And it's kind of important, actually, because they're going to determine the winners based on, on the vote. So if you, if you like what we're doing here, uh, take a minute and go to webbyawards.com and let them know. So now, my guest, Ben Smith. Uh, I met Ben uh, in Iowa back in 2007 when he was working for Politico uh, and uh, he wrote a, a blog there on politics and was covering the campaign. Sometimes it had a little edge to it that pissed me off. Uh, but oftentimes I was impressed by how insightful he was. And he came to some conclusions before many others about what was going on in 2007 uh, that showed real uh, wisdom and insight into our political process. And then he went on to become the, uh, one of the major domos at BuzzFeed where he manages their news operation. I got to talk to Ben the other day. He came by the university, by the Institute of Politics, got to talk to him about the state of our politics, the state of news in the era of Trump, uh, BuzzFeed, and the new media environment. Ben Smith, welcome. When, I, when you and I first encountered each other a decade or so ago, maybe longer, uh, you were uh, just a reporter dogging me and asking provocative questions, and uh, and now you're like a empire. Uh, so congratulations on that. Thanks. I, yeah, come to think of it, I never I never got the sense I was your favorite reporter. Yeah, you know what? It's not necessarily as an old journalist. I'm not sure that you should aspire to be anybody's favorite reporter anyway. But, no. uh, but you were good. You know that when I wrote, <clears throat> when I wrote my book, uh, Believer, and I was re- re- uh, recounting the uh, campaign of 2007 and eight, I came across an old a piece you wrote from uh, Iowa in July of 2007. And it was kind of a... It was a a, a seminal moment in the campaign because it was when Obama started um, uh, finding his voice. And you kind of discerned what we were doing and nobody else had. You wrote about the fact that um, in a very partisan you know, contest there in the caucuses, that people actually were hungering for someone who could be a unifying figure in the country, that that actually trumped hyper-partisanship, uh, or at least that you, you, you discern that that was our theory, that that message might actually break through. And you were the first guy who actually wrote that piece. So um, I, I, years later, I have to tell you, I really admired your reporting, even if I didn't mention it to you until, you know, 10 years later. Huh. Yeah, gosh, that seems like an exotic theory now. Yeah, but uh, yeah, exactly. Although it it certainly was true yeah. then. It it absolutely was true and we were finally getting sort of breaking through with that and uh it was it was that was impressive that you 
that you picked up on it. But I digress because we should talk about you. Uh, and uh, in uh, getting ready uh, to speak with you, I learned stuff about you that I never knew before. And I'm not even going to ask you about your parents yet. I want to ask about your grandparents. because, oh dear. I, Well, I, I, you know, I love baseball. Yeah. And it turns out that your your grandfather was a a novelist turned guy who wrote about baseball. Yeah, he was he was a baseball historian and a uh, and a ghostwriter for Mickey Mantle and Tommy John and and many other ball players. What? How did that? Uh, he was he like from birth a baseball fan or? Yeah, he had played. You know, he, he was born in nineteen oh six, so he had played whatever kind of sandlot semi professional ball and been a pitcher, and then had had. I think he he grew up in Boston and had gone to college for a little while and dropped out to work in the woods, and and to and, work in the woods. Yeah, in May. I was mean, it, it like thing Thoreau you did, like, or something? No, like to cut trees down. In oh, May, I see. Like a logger. <laughs> like it was like that was what that's you what know, they were doing. Massachusetts in the woods. I figured. Yeah, no, it wasn't. Writer, you, know, you know, I don't come of wasp stock, so there was none of that. Um, uh, yeah, he's from Irish Boston, um, and. Yeah, and then I think you know, and then and then eventually sort of found his way into a sort of fancy New York novelist career that was not a milieu he totally loved, and and then wound up hanging out with uh, ball players. And yeah, my, my dad, baseball. you know, was a, was an immigrant and came to New York and learned uh, baseball. I think before he learned English and played mm-hmm. with Hank Greenberg and ended up being a like baseball got a college scholarship because he could play could pitch and stuff so that uh that cut. now did he impart his love of baseball to you yeah yeah for sure although he also you know it's funny i was i i he, he was i was very close to him and grew up kind of following him around and I recently was going through his papers and the way he reported was so amazing you know he because he would he wrote these several histories of baseball and you know it was this he was probably writing them in the 50s the 60s and and so he would write letters to all the players on the team uh, you know, saying, you know, there was this great play, there's this legendary time when so-and-so stole third base and the, and then they over, and the catcher overthrew and the guy came into home and crashed into the catcher and everybody was talking about it. Can, can you, uh, you were playing second, can you recount to me what you remember of that? And he would just be mailing all these letters to retired ballplayers in Florida and having this extensive, detailed correspondence about like these kind of half-forgotten plays. But not this, to them, I bet. No, totally vivid to them, yeah, and, and and it was this non-academic history. This, but based on all these, just all these letters, just piles and piles of letters to old. And were these books literary in their feel? No, they were they were very <laughs> unpretentious and kind of. He's a little anti-intellectual. It was uh-huh. very, uh, yeah, very. I, very went to you, I wonder if you wrote a letter to Mickey Mantle saying, "What were you guys doing in the Copacabana when that <laughs> brawl broke out that caused the Yankees to trade Billy Martin?" He, he ghost wrote a book for Mickey Mantle, and and this is, I mean, the glory days of ghostwriting, which I assume continue to this day. In which, and I have the galley that he sent Mantle, and Mantle's comment out was, "Looks good." <laughs> <laughs> I bet that's true. I, I wonder if he thumbed through it to see if it was a how how uh, probing a biography it was. In retrospect, probably not what he was looking for. Huh? No, I think it probably was what he was looking for. It didn't didn't get the sense he was a big reader though. <laughs> um, so that so your interest in writing reporting was that part of yeah, your actually. grandfather? He, he'd also he'd been in, he'd, he'd been working in the Maine woods and had been. Um, and, and actually had 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 run into they'd been and then and then wound up working in a ho- as a night clerk in a hotel there and befriended a New York newspaper publisher who was staying there, and the guy um, 
the guy took a liking to him and said, you should come down to New York and come work for the, I think it was the New York world. And, um, and, and telegraphed him and said, and I still, I have the telegraph, you know, come down January 1st, 1920, whatever, and come work for us. And he came down and he wound up covering, uh, the, the crash of the, the stock market crash and huh. said that the reporters would watch in his t- probably embellished telling this as, as these sort of like finance guys lost their fortunes and jumped out windows and then the crowds would cheer. Um, My. yeah, but he, yeah. I don't know. He also he wrote, in one of his novels. He wound up. He wrote about a guy who was a night clerk at a hotel and who gets a telegraph from a publisher coming to telling him to come down to New York and be a journalist. And in the novel, the guy rips it up and stays in the woods. Like he, <laughs> he was always ambivalent about it. Did you? Uh, but did he impart to you an interest in that? Oh yeah. I mean, I wanted you know I wanted to be a writer when I grew up, and I actually always sort of fantasized in particular about being a city hall reporter for a New York tabloid. Like that's what I wanted to be. Yeah. So you made it. Yeah, I got to be City Hall for the New York Daily News, which was pretty good. I, I want to ask you about that, but just a, just a couple of things on your folk. I know your grandmother was a Mark Twain scholar or something. Yeah, you really did your homework. I don't even know where you'd find that. There are people in the room here who are listening to us record this who do an assiduous job of preparing me for these conversations. So nice job, guys. Good but, work. Uh, yeah. yeah. I'm glad he, she actually was a Mark Twain scholar because that would have been awkward if that wasn't true. But yeah, so uh, so that that is interesting in and of itself. Did you did she regale you with stories of uh, Mark Twain? She published actually a great collection called Mark Twain on the Damned Human Race. Mark Twain was a very there was a lot of really darkness and pessimism in Twain. Yeah, that I think life is just one damn thing after another was a Mark Twain yeah, quote. And he he wrote a he wrote a story where the devil comes to earth and I think is sort of appalled by how terrible all the humans are. Yeah. Well look, some of the great right, H. L. Mencken, yeah. just a just a miserable guy in many ways, uh, but uh one of the great talents certainly one of the great talents in journalism of the twentieth twentieth century. And your dad uh was a judge. Yeah, he was a Pataki appointee. He's a conservative Republican. He was on the bench in New York. And, and, and But your mom was not a conservative. No, I think, I mean, I think like maybe like a lot of journalists, I grew up in a household where my parents disagreed on pretty much everything and it makes it hard for you to to be a real ideologue or to sort of, you know, or to see the opposing side, to, to see these two sides as irreconcilable enemies. Yeah, she's a, she's a Democrat and... He's also fairly Christian. She's Jewish, so I, uh, I don't know. It, Cover it, a lot it, of bases turns, there, man. It, it's a it's a good way to uh, turn out a kind of wishy washy journalist. <laughs> I never thought of you as wishy washy, but um, did, was your dad involved? I mean, he you have to run for a judge, right? No, it's an appointment. Oh, it is. It's totally yeah, appointment. You never have to been, run for retention. Or he'd anything. been a lawyer for most of his career. Uh huh. And yeah. was he active in politics? Yeah, at all? he was a big supporter of uh, George W. Bush and of, of Pataki. Uh huh. Probably going back, well, in in the day to the kind of Rockefeller Javits. He'd be, you know, or was he? I think he'd been a liberal, and I think, and I kind of sympathize with this. It's like hard to be a liberal on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. Like it just seems like it kind of gets boring, right? Yes. So I think eventually. Well, a liberal. There's a, certain, the, there's a certain kind of personality where you live on the Upper West Side of Manhattan and you wind up a conservative. Liberal on the Upper West Side of Manhattan is a conservative. <laughs> Right, I mean, liberal is way to the to the right of the average person yeah. on, on the Upper West Side uh, of Manhattan. Uh, and you you uh, you went through private schools there. Yeah, 
I only mention that because I'm a public school graduate. You know, know PS40, junior high school, 104. That's where. That's the yeah. other New York, Ben. You know, my, I think my son is going to be going to your alma mater, actually. Stuyvesant? Yeah. Yeah, Stuyvesant he just, High he School. He just got in. He's really pleased. Yeah. It's a great place. It's a greater place now, probably. When I went there, it was a dumpy, like, 19th century building on the on 16th Street and 1st Avenue. Since then, they've built this incredible edifice in lower Manhattan that is like space age. Yeah, it's gorgeous. Space space age high school. And uh, were you writing then? Were you writing in school? You know, not that much. I didn't. I, 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 you know, I guess I worked for the high school newspaper, but it was never. There's a kind of like organizational ability and ambition that gets you to be editor of your high school newspaper that I never totally had. Um, yeah, so I you know wrote a bit, but didn't. You know, I don't know. My summer job was delivering chairs. Yeah, and then you ended up, uh, you, you, uh, where'd you go to school? Went to Yale. And you ended up at the, doing an internship at the, at the Forward. The for, the Forwards. Yeah, that was really where I got the bug. Jewish newspaper. Yeah, Jewish newspaper. Could have just as easily apparently been the Catholic Daily, but the, you the, the, got Iri- the, the, Iri- the Irish Echo. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, you know, yeah, it was sort of, you know, it was a, it was, I was one of a fairly large number of interns and the editor is a guy named Seth Lipsky, really one of the great newspaper editors yeah. I've ever encountered. Um, and just totally got the bug. I mean, covered uh, Eric Schneiderman's race for state Senate on the Upper West Side. Right now like the a attorney huge, general, a big thorn in President Trump's side. Yep. There's a huge oppo fest, man. There's a lot of oppo in that state Senate race being fa- <laughs> being faxed to me. Uh-huh. But yeah, I, I just kind of fell in love with it. And Lipsky tried to get me to drop out of Yale and stay there with him. But uh, and I almost did. <laughs> yeah. Well, you wouldn't... I- I had that same I would, my first newspaper was The Villager in New York oh, yeah. and I got an internship when I was in college and then it took me a while to get back to college cuz I I mean it's just I so like much to fun. work so much. Yeah, yeah, you can't believe they pay you for it. Yeah, well they barely did, but <laughs> that was also true. I couldn't believe how how little they paid me to do it, but I I would have done it for nothing honestly yeah. and they they knew that too. And you ended up at the Indianapolis Star. Yeah, that was uh you know I was a New York City kid, and that seemed like a really interesting, faraway place to go. And? I mean, it was. I mean, I, it, was, it was a fellowship, this thing, the Pulliam Fellowship, which mm-hmm. I think they still do really kind of a great program, covered cops, which is just like such an important thing to do as a reporter, because particularly as you become, as you move into national politics, you can kind of say anything. Like, there's a, nobody, there's not a machine for holding people accountable when they, when they, say just kind of bullshit about national politics, stuff that could be true or could be false and is sort of unverifiable. When you cover crime, like somebody's, somebody's child or, not, or yeah, father yeah. got killed, right. and, you better, and if you spell their name wrong, that is like incredibly hurtful to them. And, and this, is the most, this is the worst day of their life, and you're covering a situation where the stakes are, for this person, incredibly high. And so you, you have to get it right, and you feel the importance of getting it right. Now, did you do this at night? I did get to do some night cops, although I was mostly... I was mostly, uh, I mean, I was like essentially an intern. They called it a fellowship, but uh, and, and paid better than an internship. But in other ways, it was not a very senior job. The, the strangest thing that happened was that summer, there was a, um, you probably remember this guy. He was a racist spree shooter who came through Chicago and then Bloomington, Indiana. His name was Benjamin Nathaniel Smith, which was my name. Oh, is that right? Mine is, my middle name is Eli. But, uh, and it was very strange. And it was the 4th of July, so the interns were working. 
And so I covered this, and I remember calling the FBI and saying, I'm a reporter from the International Star, this is my name, and they immediately called the desk back and said, do you actually have a reporter with that name? <laughs> yeah. So but I, let, me, let, let me ask you this. <laughs> uh, how does one go from um, the Indianapolis Star to the Baltic Times in Latvia? You know, I, it, it, was, it was the late 90s, and everybody wanted to go to Prague. And I had actually studied Czech. I speak some Czech and read Milan Kundera, and so I applied for a job at the Prague Post, but everybody wanted to work in Prague. So I couldn't get a job in Prague. I tried to get a job in Warsaw. No During dice. the Havel period, huh? Yeah, it was the sort of, yeah, I think I guess Havel was still in charge. Mm-hmm. And it was just like, the, you know, there's this great book called um, called Prague by Arthur Phillips where he, uh, about all these young young Americans in Istanbul who want to go to Prague. It was just like that was where people wanted to be. In any case, I couldn't suit. get a job in Moscow. Mm-hmm. And I went, the one job I could get was at the Baltic Times, the uh, the best English language weekly in Riga. Uh-huh. And, and so you had the one experience in Indianapolis Talk about what that experience did for you. Um, I mean, so I, I wrote for the Baltic Times for a little while, but was also sort of, you know, a hustling freelancer stringer, wound up stringing for the Wall Street Journal. And certainly, I do think that there's something about being that far from the center that you, you know, as a reporter, you sort of have to really think about what people are going to be interested in. Like, there was no reason for anybody ever to, in, in the U.S. necessarily to ever run a story about Latvia. And like it wasn't then once I once I was in Belarus when the Latvian government fell and like the desk didn't notice. I got back like terrified that they'd be mad at me because I'd missed something. But nope, nobody noticed. And so this is not like I was like the least valued employee of the entire Dow. I was paying 500 bucks a month, but of the entire Dow Jones, you know, I wasn't an employee, but of the entire Dow Jones empire. Um, But so you really had to like think about what people were interested in. So what kinds of stories did you write? you know, story a lot of actually a lot of features, a lot of stories about it was you know the the core stories were were NATO and European Union accession, but um, but but really kind of like stories about the withdrawal of the Soviet Union, what was left behind, the sort of attempts to remake these market economies. There was, I mean, Russian influence. It was sort of a joke then that Russia was constantly drawing red lines. The West was constantly stepping over for them, and there were no consequences. It was when Russia was its sort of weakest and most humiliated. Nobody bothered learning Russian anymore out there. Yeah, it's really a very different. These moment. are the times that caused Vladimir Putin's blood to boil. Yeah, oh yeah, a hundred percent. Yeah, do you what? Looking back on that experience and watching some of these developments today, and Putin in particular, and some of the. Um, sort of uh, retrenchment that's going on there. Um, did, what what are your thoughts about that? I mean, I think that on, you know, that that you know, these countries are incredibly vulnerable. I mean, if you've just physically been there, Skov, this Russian military center is down the road from Riga, and, and, and you sort of feel their, I mean, when you're, the, you can sort of feel their kind of geographical vulnerability. Um. I mean, I think, honestly, the the thing I learned most there, in a way, was these countries were, you know, when you come from the U.S., you think about you think about your country as a real actor in history and about sort of how American actions shaped the 20th century. These are countries that were, you know, that just history kind of washed back and forth over them. Hundreds of thousands of people died, murdered, and deported. They weren't really, they just weren't historical actors at all. It was something that happened to them. And the whole, and, and it looks so, and, and and the, particularly the Second World War, but the sort of 20th century history looks so different from the perspective of of these countries. And actually, I think this Sebastian Gorka story now, I mean, I think that's a, that's a story that I think about in that context. Right? Aid, in the, aid in the White House. Yeah, Hungarian 
emigre family, comes back to Hungary, is associated with the nationalists there, who have, you know, who were sort of, who were tied to the Nazi side and people who supported the Nazis during World War II. That's a very complicated story, and I think you can't, it's very hard for me to, it's difficult, I think, to judge the the choices that people made about which side you're on when, when you're choosing between Stalin and Hitler in these little countries with no sense of their own destiny. I do think it's a, perhaps a different thing to, in the, in the aughts, join one of those groups. Mm-hmm. But I do think that, he's, that that's a story that's kind of steeped in this history that's like hard for us to even understand. Going to take a short break. We'll be right back with, with Ben Smith. So uh, on the subject of Gorgut, so so how does that inform your thinking about how he, he he is thinking as an aide to the president? Now he's pretty tied in with Bannon and this uh, kind of um, hypernationalism and uh, anti-immigrant, anti-trade, battleship America kind of view. Yeah, I mean, it seems like he comes out of this. It's almost not so much twentieth-century nationalism, but it's. But in, in these smaller Eastern European countries, there was this nostalgia for, you know, the as they saw it, and in some cases accurately, kind of brave patriots who had resisted the Soviets when the communists took over, in some cases, you know, fighting in the forests and taking pot shots at Soviet soldiers through the 50s. In, other, in some cases, very tightly aligned with the Nazis. In other cases, not. Um, but I think, you know, there was a revival of, of kind of nostalgia for those groups and for that which is a complicated thing and, you know, certainly associated with a real ethnic nationalism. I mean, in Hungary and lots of these places, it really, there weren't, there weren't a lot of Jews at that point to get upset about, but it really, I think there was real like violence against gypsies and that's who those were the internal enemy. These guys were going after and the parties and the groups that Gorka was associated with were certainly associated with that. I mean, it's, it's a really, it's a sort of small and odd stream to be drinking from in, in this particular moment. It's uh, so odd, too, because, you know, you and we'll get to this. I don't want to leap into it, but, um, you know, you lay that aside, the sort of pro-Russian influences that you see around Trump and, you know, how do you reconcile all that. But all over Europe, you know, you now you see this sort of, uh, you know, right-wing populist, these right-wing populist movements growing with ties to Russia. I mean, it's a direct assault on liberal democracies. And, you know, how do you reconcile all of those different strains? Yeah, I mean, I think it's kind of what Putin has this. I mean, the communists could never have supported these deeply anti-communist groups, but Putin has no idea, is, is very ideologically flexible. And so, yeah, has is is strangely enough aligned with the people who were on the other side of the great patriotic war. Right. Right. Um, getting back to firing peaceful shots, you, you then covered New York politics for yeah. a while. How, how did you find your way back after, after nine 11, actually, you know, I kind of wanted to come home and it's not, and there wasn't a lot of interest. Did, in by the way, being overseas, did it give you a different, uh, feeling about America? Did, did it, did it refine your view of this country? Eh, not in a not in a way I can really put a finger on. Okay, then let's go back to how you got back to New okay. York. Um, you know, after nine eleven, I I really wanted to come home. There was not a a burning interest in Latvian news. <laughs> Actually, that was another time the desk probably didn't check in with me for like two months, um, or maybe I mean I haven't told them. I just kind of went home. You know, it was there was 
Eastern Europe had been a big story of the 90s and immediately totally fell off the map. But And I called Seth, who had been my editor at the um, at the forward, and asked him if he knew of any jobs. And he said, oh, I just raised money to start a conservative New York newspaper, the New York Sun. And I, um, and you know, come work for me. And so I did. And I was, I went and worked for them for six months, actually before they started. So I did things like I, I reported out and wrote Ed Koch's obituary. He long outlived the New York Sun. Yes. Um, and you sunset know, sunset before he did. I did, and I would, I would call people and say, "I'm working for the New York Sun." And before I could say a newspaper that does not yet exist, they would say, "Oh, I love that paper. We take it every day." <laughs> um, <laughs> So six months. Yeah, and then we launched, and uh, you know, I was there for a year, year and a half, covered uh, these sort of permanent um, New York stories. There was a great expose this week on these uh, lawyers in Queens who just make enormous amounts of money from the surrogate courthouse in Queens, and I was like, God damn it, I wrote that exact story about those same people <laughs> in 2002. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's and, and yeah, I was in Bloomberg City Hall. Uh, early on when he was he was uh the smoking ban was the big fight he he spent a lot of time yelling at maggie haberman about smoking because she would smoke on the steps of city hall <laughs> had the real like privilege of being in this kind of basement city hall press room with glenn thrush and maggie haberman which was yeah of, they're uh, they're they've gone on to bigger and better things. yeah they've, huh? they've done all right they uh, and i remember because i was like this kid reporter is my first job and and they were sitting, you know, she, he, she was like the fourth string reporter at the Post, and he was either at Bloomberg or Newsday, but like the real guys were up in room nine, and we were down in room 4A, the Annex press room, and I and they were, they were just such terrifyingly aggressive and strong reporters, and, and I remember thinking like, my God, if this is the B team, like how good are the, like the real hacks upstairs? But of course, these were like the two best reporters I've ever encountered, yeah. basically, right? Yeah, and, I did and we at that should moment. note, they're, they're doing... Incredible reporting on the administration yeah. right now. Was uh, Trump, uh, was he part of your consciousness back then when you were covering City Hall? You know, he was kind of on the margins of my consciousness because by that time he was kind of a joke. I remember one, one of my, the one thing I remember asking Maggie very early on when in my like, you know, New York tablet, New York journalism career that there would be the, the gossip pages of the news and the post would constantly have these incredible stories. I'm trying to remember which wife it was, but maybe it was Marla was either sleeping with Trump or wasn't sleeping with him or in the same bed or not in the same bed. And the sex was great or it wasn't great. And it was always to a source close to Trump. And, <laughs> and I, I remember asking like, who is this source you guys have? Like, this is crazy. Is it like the housekeeper? You know? And she's like, no, you idiot. It's Trump. Like that's the, the that's the code. And that was a real, that was a real eye opening moment for, for, for me. Yeah. John, um, what's his, what was his, his John, this was after the John Miller days. John Miller. Yes. But, uh, but he also, yeah, um, his, his <laughs> alias, but the other thing was, you know, by the time I got to the New York Observer, which would have been my next job in like oh three oh four, by that time, and we never wrote about Trump. He was he just wasn't he wasn't you know we we covered the New York City power elite, and he was not part of it. And in fact, another reporter recently told me by the time I got there, there was a there was a ban on quoting him. He was such a dial a quote, such an easy get that if you were working on some feature and it was Tuesday afternoon and you only had two quotes and you needed a third, you just call Trump and wherever he was, he'd pick up the phone and spout some nonsense. The weird thing is, he's still an easy quote. Yes. I mean, for, you can either dial up uh, your uh, Twitter account or reporters call and say, I'd like to talk to the president. And if he's in the mood, he just apparently picks up the phone and does it. It's got to, got to be a, a nightmare for the people around him. I think a lot of the people who get who have gotten good press and are sophisticated press have always done their own press, right? I feel like as a reporter, you sort of sense that category of character. 
Like, you know, maybe they have effective aides around them, but like Al, Al Sharpton. Hard for president, though. You know, Al Sharpton. Sh- I mean, he's, you know, it's un- unconventional. Yeah, I would say. <laughs> I would say. Um, you, you were going to say something about Sharpton? Now, there's this category of New York figure who've always, who are sort of self-invented and and you wonder sometimes, gosh, who's behind the curtain? But of course, it's just them. They're behind the curtain. Yeah, and I think of Sharpton in that category. I think of Trump in that category. There's a you know, handful of others. You mentioned the Observer. This is, of course, in the pre- Jared Kushner uh, days. Did you? When when did he come on your radar screen? He bought the paper. But. Well, his family had been on our the Observer's radar screen because Tom McGovern, a reporter there, did a lot of the reporting on his father's very complex and strange criminal case, and which revolved in some ways around Jim McGreevy's kind of right. departure and disgrace. Um, he was the governor of New Jersey. New Jersey. It was all the most New Jersey stuff yeah. you ever heard. Yeah. Um, it was and, raunchy and a lot of sex and and we and and strange goings on and um and yeah and Jared I guess you know bought the paper I think in two thousand and six yeah I mean I think I, I never really had you a were gone by the yeah day. and I you know know him casually but never had any real meaningful interaction with him what's your sense of him I mean. You know, I don't. I don't really have a strong sense of him, and he didn't. I don't think he left a searing. You know, he's imp- running the world now. That's why. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I saw that. He. I don't think he left a real searing impression on the uh, on the people who worked with and for him. I mean, he. Um, certainly not at the Observer. He. Uh, I mean, I saw. You know, t- today we reported that, or we recently reported that he. Um, that he's also solving relations with the um, American Muslim community. He's he had a private meeting with Muslim leaders. He, and I think also the Middle East, and he's also reforming government. And it does seem he's a liaison to China. To China, I mean, he it, was if, just in Iraq. If you weren't, if he were not, you know, a relative by marriage to the president, you would say, "Wow, they're setting this guy up for a fall." Yeah, but I, th- that's the thing, you know, in the Trump family. If when you're in, you're in. Um, it's not likely that, and that's part of the problem of having relatives in those jobs is you know everybody in the building knows well they're not getting fired uh they're not going to get let go so uh it puts them in a in a in an advantageous position but it it creates a group dynamic that's going to be awfully strange you know do you think loyalty is a flaw in a politician uh no i think loyalty is to be admired to a point uh, if you're loyal to the point where your loyalty um, jeopardizes your responsibilities to do the job you need to do, uh, then I think it's problematical. I mean, you can be personally loyal to someone, but not at the expense of the country. So, um, you know, I, I guess I would put it that way. And certainly I understand him wanting to be have people around him who he trusts. The reality of Trump is the only people he's really ever trusted terribly much were his were his kids and his his family. Uh and it's hard to run a hard, hard to run the United States of America like that. But I guess we're going to find out. We are finding out every day. You um uh and then you moved on uh, to Politico. You uh, with Maggie and yeah. I feel like I can Glenn. tell the backstory of that. You know, they I think they wanted to bring Chris Silas. The, the, the founders of the Post were um, John Harris, Jim Van de Hei, of the Politico were great New York Post, um, Washington Post, right. um, 
political reporter and editor and I think had wanted to bring Chris Saliza with them and hadn't managed to get him along. And they wanted, you know, like a blogger. It was 2006 or seven. You needed a blogger. And then I think they tried to get Mark Ambinder and he, you know, he was at the hotline, which is a pretty good gig. And so, and so I think they were asking around and somebody knew somebody who had worked on Anthony Weiner's campaign, which I had <laughs> covered in 2005 and said, Oh, there's some blogger in New York. And so they wound up hiring me. And, um, that, that experience sort of moved you out of New York politics and international politics. Yeah, I never left New York. I always lived in New York and, and I think kind of kept a New York source space. Like I didn't really know. I mean, I had a lot of sources in Washington, but was, but also a lot of, a lot of people in Washington talked to a lot of reporters. So I think I, yeah, I mean, I was, I was certainly covering that. I was covering the Obama and the Clinton campaigns, but I was always a little weak on the Washington's part of it. Yeah, but you must have had good Clinton sources out of New York. Yeah, there were people in that orbit who were totally not on the radar of other national reporters. You, uh, uh, having covered that campaign, um, I know you you were in a sort of editorial position at BuzzFeed, which we will get to in a second uh, during this campaign. Um, did you see uh, Did you see uh, qualities in the Clinton campaign in two thousand and eight that uh, were apparent to you again uh, watching the 2016 campaign unfold? Uh, I mean, I think that they had the same candidate, which was a, probably a big challenge for both campaigns. That <laughs> people did not like her that much. This is the wry humor that uh, one appreciates when one, you weren't writing about that you. Uh, it's always nice when you're writing that about someone else. But what what is it? What were the qualities uh, that uh, ultimately were defeating for I mean, they, leaving know, aside some of the other factors. They were different, right? Because I think in 2008, they were operationally incompetent. Like they should, I feel like you, I mean, one of the things you learn covering these campaigns is how contingent it all is, right? I mean, Obama ran a great campaign in 2008. You guys had such a strong, like there were so many reasons that have to do with the vast sweep of history and what people wanted and the hopey changey stuff about why you guys win. But also if she had paid any attention to Idaho, she might've won. I mean, there were all these also nitty gritty operational things. And you do see like, wow, like the course of history turns on whether these idiots managed to like staff up and some, you know, and understand the caucus system or not, which they had managed not to. Yeah. That was such an, that's such an interesting point because, um, they pretty much, you know, uh, just to make a boxing analogy, George Foreman fought Muhammad Ali in 1974, the rumble in the jungle, right? They fought in Africa. And uh, Ali's strategy was just to, Foreman had knocked everybody out in like the first and second round. And Ali's strategy was just to hang around until he punched himself out. Uh, the Clinton campaign thought they would have this thing wrapped up in the first four contests. And the Obama campaign, of which I was part, but I wasn't the inspiration behind this element of it, uh, really focused on the other 46 contests and particularly these caucuses, which for very little, you, if you had a lot of um, uh, energy on, at the grassroots, you could organize them and dominate them and get a cache of Delegates under the party rules in a state like Idaho. I think the the day we won the Idaho caucuses, we got as many delegates net out of Idaho as she got out of New Jersey. 
Yeah, and there was the day that she won Nevada in the popular vote, which is what we all cared about. And then I remember I'm at the airport in Las Vegas flying out, <laughs> yes. and David Pluff and Jeff Berman are on the phone explaining Jeff to us Jeff Berman was the delegate counter. Pluff was because the manager, there were odd, yes. because some districts had odd number of delegates and some odd numbers of delegates, and some number some had even numbers of delegates. It was effectively a tie in all the districts we depended any attention to, which had even numbers. But that in the you know the Elko district up north, which was an odd number district. Obama had had won and thus actually gotten a margin out of the state, and he had won the state even though he By lost. By one delegate. And, and at the time, we were all kind of dismissive of it. Like, this delegate stuff felt like nonsense. But, yeah, but I think in a way, you know, the, the loss in 08 was partly that people didn't love her, but partly that they just kind of screwed up operationally. And I do think they, to a fault, decided not to make that mistake again, right? Like, if there was one thing, one mistake, they one thing they got right in 2016, it was like the delegates in the primary. They nailed that. Yeah, they did. They brought in your guy. Yes, right. In fact, Berman was working for them yep. uh, in 2016. But they kind of fought the last war. So I don't think it was exactly that they reran the same mistakes. It was almost that they overcompensated for yeah. the technical mistakes they've made, or that was maybe part of it. In terms of her, though, you... you you're a student of of people. What what is the what was the quality in her that was a a barrier? You know, I don't think I'm not sure it was a quality. I I, I think almost more that it was the absence of something, like a sort of she was never able to communicate convincingly what she cared about and why she thought she, why she should what her sort of like burning mission to be president was that people could identify with. So I'm not sure there was any one thing. I mean, obviously, there was a level of kind of paranoia and secretiveness that comes in a kind of somewhat understandable way from her life, but also has been an element of their world. But it does feel like there was more that something was missing that you usually, usually to get to where she was, you've gotten there because you've got a kind of burning mission or particular kind of craziness or vision. And and it never was clear that she had that. Yeah. I mean, it also is true that she, in her dealings with people like you, um, was um, uh, cautious to a fault. Pretty, And it's hard to connect with people through the filter that the media is if you're very guarded. Yeah, I covered her really for, um, I, mean, I guess, 13 years. And, and all the time I was really covering sort of a machine in an organization. And you were sort of trying to peer through all that for flashes of who the human being was. I think Ruby Kramer actually probably did a better job than anybody last cycle. Of she, I think she may be the only one who really tried to do a profile of Hillary Clinton because it's so hard, right? I mean, they just it's not something that she naturally submits herself to or opens herself to. Yeah, and I, you know, whatever you think about Donald Trump and mostly everybody thinks something about Donald Trump. Uh, the one thing people never say about him is, man, I wish he'd speak his mind. Yeah, somebody you know? asked me today, if you had one question for Donald Trump, what would it be? And I thought, you know, I, I think I know what he thinks about everything. <laughs> I can't even think of a question. Like, I, like he, is a, he answers every question about himself constantly in public. We're going to take another uh, break. We'll be right back with Ben Smith. So you made the, uh, the, 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 the big leap to BuzzFeed from Politico. What, t- talk about that decision. I mean, it looks like an act of genius now because you've got this incredible money-making machine that ha- has a, a trillion followers or something each, 
and so on. But that's how we like to see ourselves. Thank yeah, you. I, I read it right off the sheet you gave me. But um, what what made you uh, decide to take that take that leap? So so I had a I had a blog in in covered in most of my, a lot of my coverage of you guys in OA it was on this blog and it was incredibly fun to be kind of using the tool of blogging to do essentially traditional reporting but in a more incremental kind of fast moving possibly typo ridden way um than 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 I had done there than traditional media had done and also there's this very vibrant ecosystem of people like Nate Silver and Ezra Klein um you know, Andrew Sullivan, and you'd be trying to get them to link you and you'd be linking to them and you'd be attacking them and they'd be attacking you. And it was all cool as long as they gave you a nice link and drove you some traffic. And it was this very like dynamic ecosystem. I remember I, it was addictive and kind of exhausting. I remember, you know, I, and it was, if you wanted to get the latest news, you'd have a feed where you're checking all these blogs all the time, where I once, you know, went away from my desk for a couple hours and got back and people were emailing me like, are you dead? Are you okay? <laughs> um, and that, you know, and I was sort of gripped by that. It felt just so totally um, immediate and connected to the audience. And then, you know, 2010, 2011, around the healthcare fight, you could just feel, it was before you really saw this this happen in the traffic, but you could just feel all the energy flowing out of that ecosystem into Twitter. All your rivals, your sources, your readers, your crazy harassing commenta- commenters, that whole ecosystem just en masse moved over to Twitter, which was a much better tool for fighting with people and distributing news. You know, the blogging thing was kind of like, it was hard to know. It was not centralized in the same way. RSS was sort of a hack for that. But so, and, and, but, and so the blog went from feeling like this incredibly immediate connection to an audience to feeling like a beast you had to feed like print had been like the website had been honestly like i don't want to write like the big front page summary of what happened today for the website I even i'd rather be trying to break news um and the thing about the blog that had been so great was the connection to the audience most of my sources were just random readers who emailed me once with a tip not um professional politicos with an agenda and it just felt that that whole ecosystem had moved to twitter and the fun and the satisfying thing to do was to break some news and watch it spread on twitter um, so did you approach... And so so when Jonah Peretti approached me and said... Founder of BuzzFeed. Founder of BuzzFeed with what was, you know, to my eye, a kind of combination of kind of weird, funny videos and like the world's leading cat site. And yes. by the way, we are we remain. We I think yes, we still hold yes, that claim. Um, but uh, Some use that against you. But. Yeah, but only sociopaths. Um, and dog lovers. Right, dog lovers. Well, we have some yeah. dogs. <laughs> but you know, it is like in, um, in, uh, in Blade Runner. The way they determine who's a human and who's an android. You know, flee the turtle, he flips the turtle over, and it's because it's like a defining characteristic of human to have empathy for animals. Uh-huh. Um, sidebar. Uh, <laughs> the um, but so so Jonah, but so Jonah, but what it really was was a experiment with the idea that that your audience are people who at that point open their browser and open Facebook, open Twitter, open StumbleUpon in that day, open Pinterest. Um, aren't necessarily going to your website. And then the, and the challenge of what kind of media can you do that get into somebody's Facebook feed because they're good enough, not just that you click on it, but that you share it, is an interesting and different challenge. And it's one that I was in a very non-intellectual, non-abstract way was doing with Twitter. I wanted to break news and get retweets, you know, um, and, and tell people something they didn't know. Jonah, I think, was thinking about a very abstract kind of theoretical sense, and, and the team there was working really with the kind of fun web culture content. But the basic idea that, that what you're doing is not a website, it's distributed media that people are going to share for reasons that are about 
them, not about some sort of product that you're putting out was, you know, felt very much where I was. And that's why I went over to BuzzFeed. And they approached you to do it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Did you realize at the time that how big it was going to be? No, my old boss at the observer, Peter Kaplan had persuaded me that, um, and he was their first choice for that gig actually. And he had, I think. What is had, it with you that you're everybody's second and uh, third you know, choice? Just, I don't. I don't know. I, I feel like I have a better <laughs> line on that. Um, but he had said, you know, he had a great job at Condé Nast, but there was some kid who used to be a blogger who he knew who might be good. Um, and so, uh, and so he, but he said to me, and it's true that that you know, politics is sort of the media business. I mean, you have always straddled those worlds and know that, and that. And that the and the presidential campaigns are this unique opportunity for a media voice to break through, and in fact, every presidential cycle sort of gives birth to a new one. In two thousand four, I guess it was the Note. In two thousand and eight, it was Politico and Huffington Post. And you can sort of come up and define yourself around a political campaign in a way that I think is difficult at other moments because it's such a central narrative. It's so competitive. It's so clear. You can there's a scoreboard. You know who's winning. You know who's telling compelling stories. There's so much attention, and so. I think he persuaded me that in 2012 there was an opportunity to have BuzzFeed be the sort of breakout voice of that cycle. You uh, you know the criticism. You, you mentioned Andrew Sullivan. He's been. It wouldn't be. You wouldn't be unique. Andrew's pretty. He's offered sharp critiques of people in politics and media in, institutions of all sorts. The but there there are all kinds of critiques of BuzzFeed. But the main one goes to um, this notion of clickbait and the, that. You know, you're 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 after repetition, you're after eyeballs, but the content is less important than the numbers themselves, and you develop algorithms to try and de- decide which uh, stuff will be more viral. Um, and uh, maybe it's out of jealousy, I don't know, but uh, traditional journalists would say you you ought to write the story that needs to be written not the story that you think you ought to write because it's going to get reclicked more. You know, I actually never knew any journalists who didn't care if anybody read their stories. I, I, I don't really buy that notion that there were reporters who thought, you know what, I'm going to write this, I'm going to stick it in my desk drawer, and I will feel good about the fact that I wrote this story. You want stories that hit, and sometimes that, and often that means reaching a huge audience because it's incredibly compelling. Um, you know that also, and we also we and and I guess that's not something I'd apologize for. I do think one of the things the thing that is true that we've always done news and entertainment. We I think didn't define that as clearly early on. The idea that there was something called entertainment on the web in the era before web video really took off seemed kind of odd. But um, but I don't. I certainly you know once in a while somebody would tweet at me like some like quiz about you know kangaroos and say like this isn't journalism. And that is clearly the case. Like we are not submitting that for a Pulitzer Prize. <laughs> that is entertainment, and and we do this. We do a spectrum of those things. We've reorganized recently, so to sort of so that organizationally, news and entertainment are separate, which is kind of valuable. I'm a news guy, and, and primarily, and that's what I spend my time thinking about now. But but I think that there is also was this kind of snobbery that was you know a feature of the very late newspaper industry. Like for a long time in the newspaper industry, and we certainly worked at newspapers that cared a lot about whether people read them, that were competitive businesses that were driven in part by trying to reach a huge audience. Like every great newspaper was born that way. I think as newspapers, in the late days of newspapers, there was sometimes this snobbery about, oh, well, our job actually isn't to reach readers and touch people. It's to fill a newspaper. 
and that there's something grubby about about caring about your audience. I think that's actually kind of gone now. Like I now find myself telling my reporter, my editors, look, like I understand that you think this headline is a little informal, but we are not going to be more conservative than the Washington Post. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Well, obviously, a newspaper newspapers are now adapting and adjusting uh, to the world as you guys have seen because they need to get but I think it's the eyeballs world, the world as, well. as it is. But um, I guess the question is, uh, as an editor, are there things for Let's just go back to that story you wrote in 2007, that very, very good story from Iowa. Is that something that you would, would that be a, a story that you'd be interested in as an editor now? Oh, for sure. We just hired a great, uh, you know, we, I think I think we just hired a great reporter in, uh, based in Cleveland to cover Republican politics for us and help tell stories about what's going on with the Republican Party. Um, Henry Gomez, Ruby Kramer tells those stories about the Democratic Party. I think that, I think that though, one of the things that has changed is there's a, there are certain genres of sort of medium-sized newspaper articles that say here's what happened yesterday and here's like a paragraph of bullshit that purporting to be analysis about what actually about what it means you know that that nobody wants and probably were never of massively redeeming social value and so where i've been push where i push my team is toward in both directions away from that on one hand to like get the scoop get a piece of information or a or an entertaining tidbit that is sort of small and fast and clear or on the other hand like spend a year and a half nailing a huge investigation about actually this week we published this huge story about a cop in chicago who allegedly framed 51 people for murder which i feel like even by chicago standards is a lot um you know but that's not that's a story that takes there's a bit of history with that you know here in chicago uh, so i hear but that that story takes months not weeks but i think in this incredibly crowded noisy space the medium-sized things don't cut through. And so and so it actually pushes you, I think, to do both, to, to sometimes spend, invest a lot more resources than media typically does in, in getting a story that will really cut through. What kind of resources do you have? I read somewhere you have 250 people on your staff. Yeah, we have about 275 reporters now around, around the world. Some, some of them not writing. Some of them writing for local audiences in other countries. But, um, but you know, well over 200 writing for a sort of global English language audience. Uh, and, and Writing and shooting video and, you know, and where mostly do you get tweeting, that, to be honest. Where do you get that, uh, where do you recruit for, from? And how, you know, there, you, there used to be this hierarchy in newsrooms where you would learn, as you and I did, uh, as you and I did, that, um, uh, you know, from, from veteran reporters, from... What about your group? You know, we we try to, and I think have mostly succeeded in having people with a really huge range of backgrounds, which ranges from people who really came up on the web without experience in traditional newsrooms to people who have tons of, you know, who come out of, I mean, I come out of newspaper culture, and I think to some degree, if there's a divide that is expressing itself in some ways online, it's between newspaper people and magazine people. And I think we do come out of the kind of non-perfectionist, iterative newspaper um, culture, but yeah. How but, extensive are your editors? But, I mean, but, 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 but the reason in, we've been able to hire... a speed thing going here. We've always all had a speed thing. I mean, I think yeah, that we... Yeah, but we'd have additions, you know, so you'd have yeah. a little time to read these pieces. We had additions. We had, we had nobody noticing when we got things horribly wrong in print. Um, the uh, No Twitter to call you out. The um, No, I mean, the way we've been able to attract, I think, great reporters is by having very strong editors and editors who, who reporters 
admire and whose careers are interesting to them. Our, you know, our world editor, Miriam Elder, was the Guardian's Moscow correspondent for years. Mark Schufs, our investigations editor, ran, um, um, won a Pulitzer at the Village Voice and then was at the Journal and ProPublica for years. So I think, I think, you know, I think there was this moment, there was kind of this hollowing out of editors in the early 2000s as, as the sort of print industry declined it's yes. e- the easiest thing to do is to fire the editors like nobody notices at first and then there was this idea i think both reporters felt liberated by not having editors like cool you can just go blog and then news companies thought oh we can just like hire kids who don't know anything just to blog and i think that was terrible for a lot of reporters careers honestly because you don't learn and i think that by the time i started in 2011 2012 smart young reporters knew they wanted editors and were looking for a place that would give the, where they would learn and, and there'd been there'd been the pendulum that's kind of swung back a bit, and I think that's something that in recruiting is always what I sort of try to offer. One person who seems to have gotten the gestalt of these times, media wise, is Donald Trump, uh, who uh, used Twitter in a way no candidate has ever used and continues uh, to. But uh, also a, a hard guy to deal with uh, because of his relativism about facts. Uh, how do you, as an editor, deal with him? You know, I, I don't really deal with him a lot personally. We commu- we tend to, we communicate through him calling us a fail- failing pile of garbage on television. Um, but I mean, he's I a guy who that, has he has the same attitude about politics that you've expressed about journalism, and that give people what they want. I mean, and he really understands the market. He understands the mix between news and entertainment. I mean, some would say he's the sort of He's a political corollary of the modern media environment that you guys reflect. You know, I see it differently. I think he's, to a kind of remarkable degree, a creature of the 1980s media culture. I mean, he's he came up in the New York tabloid world very deeply and, and, also, and cares more about television than any political figure or consultant or anything I've talked to in 15 and years. And watches more, apparently. And watches more, right? I mean, I think he uses... The thing that has been remarkable is, I think, his ability to kind of merge those two things and use Twitter to program, particularly during the camp, the primary campaign, to program cable news. And if you look at cable news now, it is largely people reading Donald Trump tweets aloud. Um, less so now. I mean, I think they've... Post-election, I think they've... There's been a lot of soul-searching. But, um, but I think... I think he's a he's sort of, in a way, used his the strength of his voice on social media to kind of bully a kind of somewhat desperate, declining legacy media. And I think again, I think that's corrected itself partly because he breathed new life into the legacy media. Seems to me that media is more energetic today than it's been in 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 decades. Oh, I no, I I agree. I think this is the this is a pretty remarkable moment, partly because, you know, like. The out things like the evening news, which felt like they were on a long, slow kind of genteel decline, the president of the United States is freaking out about them every day, and like that's pretty energizing. Yeah, um, I think and they're edgier than they used to be. Yeah, and and yeah, and I think it's I think in an odd way, he has single handedly like restored this and postponed the collapse of a sort of a fair share of legacy media in an interesting way. You got his attention uh, earlier in the year when you published this dossier that was developed by a uh, 
uh, a former British intelligence agency for some opposition researchers who were involved in the 2016 campaign that can, included some fairly salacious charges. Uh, CNN did a piece that noted that the intelligence chiefs had briefed Trump on a summary of it, but they didn't publish the entire thing. Uh, you guys did, took some criticism for from him, but also from others. Why did you decide to do it? And was it, well, this is interesting. This will get this will get clicks. I'd say there, there were two reasons. Um, you know, one is, and I think this is something that every, you know, re- that reporters of all kinds at various times wrestle with is, you know, we, we obtained this document a bit later than other outlets. I think the Times had it in the summer. We got it in, in December. Um, and we're trying to run down and verify parts of it. And then, but it also at the same time became clear that this wasn't just, you know, we all get emails every day making crazy allegations. You do not just print those. But that this was an object that was in play. This was being the subject of a real tug of war at the highest levels of power. Dozens of journalists, intelligence officials, legislators, the president of the United States, the president-elect have been briefed on it. Harry Reid and others were starting to and act. And many people had it. People had not just had it. People were acting based on it. Mm-hmm. Like, it was hard to understand why Harry Reid had sent a certain public letter to James Comey if you didn't have this document. Like, and, and there were all sorts of decisions being made and stories coming out that were obliquely based on it. And so I think there was an argument for publishing it that we were starting to have. CNN. The criticism CNN was that you couldn't verify any of the facts in it. CNN then, um, right, and that's, and obviously there's, there are times, like the question of when you put out an allegation with the word alleged and when you don't is something journalists deal with constantly every day. Um, and anytime you see the word alleged, what, you, what you're reading is, we did not verify this. Um, the, the thing that for us pushed it clearly over the line was that CNN came out and said, not just there is this dossier that we've done, but they stated the two central claims, that the Russians have compromising material on Donald Trump and that, um, and that Donald Trump's aides have had secret, to- secret contacts with Russian intelligence. I, I, I really do understand the argument for not publishing this and continuing to chase it, and that's where we were, and I understand the argument. I don't totally understand the argument for walking out halfway, saying we have a secret document here is a hazy and kind of sinister summary of the main charges. We will not tell you what they are. We will not let you see it and evaluate it. But we're, we're just going to tease it out for you and make it sound, actually, in, to me, a lot more sinister. Well, I think that the reasoning, what, not to represent CNN, because you know I'm affiliated with Oh, gosh, with I forgot you were a yeah, CNN that's employee. Okay. That's all right. But not, uh, it was, was that uh, the news event was that the president had been briefed on it, and so, if they hadn't repeated the charges, that would make sense. The president's been briefed on it. Well, that we're not going to tell you what's in it. Okay. Well, but that would have been a, an odd thing too. But, the, but we, we we don't. Yeah, I, we don't need to. Uh, <laughs> but that, anyway, that that is, that is how we think about it more broadly. Now it turns out that a lot a number of the elements of it have gotten a lot more serious attention as this investigation. Yeah, yeah. Goes I mean, there forward. were a lot of factors. The seriousness of the author was also part of it, mm-hmm. right? This wasn't some flaky person it was somebody right. highly being taken regarded seriously. intelligence but person. it's i mean these are complicated decisions i mean i do think from our perspective we think that our responsibility is to our audience and it's just, and the question we're asking is not so much what will other reporters think or what will donald trump think but but if you're a reader of buzzfeed do we think you can't handle this is there some reason that like i have a special glasses that allow me to see this because i'm a trained journalist but if you a member of the audience see this it will scald your eyes out because you don't know how to handle unverified claims and i think actually that is a for better or for worse and arguably for worse just a feature of the media environment now our audiences are swimming in 
all kinds of information and we all have a choice of do you say, you know what, the traditional posture is, I'm not going to touch this stuff. There's a rumor out there that Barack Obama is a Muslim. It's incredibly toxic. It's clearly false. I'm hearing it everywhere. But like my job as a journalist is just to stay away from it. Or at some point, do you try to engage it and debunk it? Do you try, or do you, or do you, do you report that that's a feature of the campaign? I mean, this is something I think we both wrestled with in 2007. And I think, you know, you're, there's this impulse to be the gatekeeper, but you're standing there at the gate and there's just water flowing past on both sides. And that's, well, I think the sort of ecosystem. And, and we see our role as in a way less, not as a gatekeeper, but as a kind of a guide through that kind of crazy, in some ways, very polluted mess. Pew did a poll. you probably been haunted by questions about this, but Pew did a poll about the trusted news sources. BuzzFeed was sort of down at the bottom. I think that was 2014 data. So let's like... So So you're more trusted now? I hope so. I mean, our... Why why do you think you were there? And do you think you corrected whatever created that impression? That poll, and I think broadly this is true, the the majority of people had no opinion on whether or not you trust BuzzFeed Mm -hmm. in 2013. It's an old poll. Mm -hmm. And I think you know, we came in as a news organization in this odd posture of having a huge audience who really liked BuzzFeed and related to us. But I think for a lot of people, we were a source of really purely a source of entertainment. I mean, when I started, that's what we were. And so to say, do you trust this quiz about kangaroos is like a category error. Mm -hmm. It's like saying, you know, do you trust this primetime drama? Like, no, it's entertainment. You don't ask that question. I think so we have... I mean, it's obviously an, an advantage to come in with people liking you and then say, hey, we, we hope you'll trust us. So your, your job is to, is to build that bridge to new. Yeah, for sure. And I think for a lot of, for people who follow politics closely and other, and other stories closely, or for people who are reporting has kind of touched directly, you know, we're building that trust. But also it's, you know, we've been around, we, we haven't been doing it as long as some of our, as some others. And so we realize it'll take a little while. So I don't begrudge you your, your your success in what is undoubtedly fantastic wealth that will flow your way for being part of this uh, growing enterprise. But I'm deeply resentful about one thing, which is you're crowding me in this podcast space now. You started this <laughs> podcast called Newsfeed with Newsfeed Ben. Uh, BuzzFeed Ben. BuzzFeed Ben. I'm sorry. Newsfeed with BuzzFeed Ben. Yes. Uh, and it's Just we're we're going to record a, an episode of it as soon as we finish this one, and we're going to post both of them uh, on Thursday. Uh, so why you have to come into my space, man? You know, I, I I've always been a reporter, and 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 I'm sure as you and as I've like become become an editor, I. I I'll go crazy if I don't have an excuse to bother people and interview them. And so this podcast is, you know, I hope my excuse to 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 grill people about the stuff I'm obsessed with, which is media, tech, politics, and, and the way in which they're all kind of intersecting now. I mm-hmm. think more and more, I mean, you know, we have really essentially a media figure as president of the United States. And so it's, that's, I think that story is a, is a great story. And I get to harass people like you about it. Well, in the interest of keeping you sane, uh, then I will accept the fact that you're going to have a podcast. I, I appreciate that. Yeah. So please consider it therapeutic. Okay. Appreciate uh, being with you and uh, look forward to that chat. Thanks, Dave. Ben Smith of BuzzFeed. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu.
quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.